You know, sometimes I don't know if <coughs> you watch the news very often, but it is in the mornings or uh, in the newscast at some point, you have a desk of people that are doing the main uh, news events and covering the mass topics and telling you all the things that happened that day and so forth. And then inevitably they have to transition to the weather at some point, and I don't know if that kind of gets a big eye roll out of you or not, but when the weather person tries to make a perfect segue somewhere from the topic that is randomly taking place at the desk, and then they move to the news or they move to the weather, and the weatherman makes some sort of awkward segue, and you think, that doesn't really work. Um, I don't have to do that at this point. I am, I, Brother Jay spoke specifically what Ecclesiastes is getting at. You heard right at the end of Brother Jay's presentation, uh, as he speaks for himself and his family, the mark of Christianity, that as he said, the exaltation of Christ is what matters. There couldn't be a more perfect introduction than to the book of Ecclesiastes. We have to get there by several means in several ways and several points of analysis. But as we looked in our reading and in our introduction, it is the same. That is what he appeals to at the end. Kohelet, or that is the preacher, appeals to the same. When it's all said and done, this is what matters. And he says it in perhaps an old covenant kind of way, as Brother Jay said in this more new covenant ministry, and that is the same, however, that the exaltation of Christ is the sum total of the matter. This morning, as we then consider that from the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll notice that the underlying assumption for the preacher is that every human being desires a meaningful existence. That is the underlying assumption of the book. That is why the book can even be written, because he can engage his audience from what he already universally knows, and that is that every human being, including you human beings this morning, desire to have some measure of significance about your existence. That is fundamental, as later we'll find out, as he has already disclosed through our time of reading, God has put eternity in the heart of man. Every man considers the big questions of life. Though some person will say, no, I don't really bother with that. I move on very quickly. They're lying. Every individual at some point in time, often, as we have discussed before, human matters, the mind begins to run on the ultimate outcomes of our existence, typically at night, when we're isolated and alone. Thus, we find ourselves often doing other things than being alone because those are kind of the watchman terrors where we lay alone and then we begin to ask uncomfortable questions that are very significant, like, is there meaning? Why am I here? Where did I come from? Every individual desires to have a meaningful existence. No one, no one, no matter what they say, and this is the underlying assumption of the book, no one wants to believe that their life is void of meaning empty, and inconsequential. doesn't matter if I was here. No one will notice when I'm gone. No one wants to simply give way to that kind of feeling, that kind of insignificance and meaninglessness about their existence. Thus, Kohele, that is the preacher, can engage every human being universally there. 
The preacher affirms, as you'll see in the next weeks ahead, he affirms that seeking meaning and validation for your life is not wrong. It's not wrong that you have that desire. It's not wrong that you want to find out what the meaning to your life is. It isn't wrong to seek validation, to discover the purpose and meaning of your existence. This isn't the challenge of the book. However, when the seeking of meaning turns into madness, is when you seek meaning into all of the wrong places. That's the problem. Not desiring to be validated. Not desiring to have a sense of significance about being alive. But it is when you seek that significance in all the wrong places. That becomes madness. The preacher will argue. There is no place or thing in the world... This is the thrust of the book. There is no place or thing in the world that can provide sufficient, and if you could with me mentally highlight, sufficient validation or meaning for your existence. That is, in other words, the problem isn't enjoying life's benefits. It isn't that the believing community, that is, those in union by faith to Christ, ought to downplay everything that the world has to offer. Anything you can enjoy, spit upon it. Mentally be somehow pretending to be superior to it. Pretend that you're completely dissatisfied and disinterested in any good thing that God has provided to the earth as a mark somehow of your Greater union to the Lord is that you find no enjoyment in the earth. That isn't what he's getting at. Even at the most aggressive statements of the book, the point of where it becomes from beneficial unto madness is when we take that which is proportionate in its return and we make it ultimate in its return. The Lord has given us a wonderful creation. Remember, he himself does declare, and it was good. And there's no reason then, as the mark of true spirituality, is to deny it. Be aesthetic. Be, just totally go away and hide and cover and then downplay and denounce every good gift. Invest in no one and no thing. But rather, again, keeping the benefits proportionate to their return. Not ultimate, that which was meant to be partial. Now this is the concern once again of the book, is that there is, when we pursue that level, that that which is proportionate has now become ultimate. The burden will bear greatly upon the individual, as the preacher says, in the world. There is not a single item, there is not a single relationship, there is not a single degree, there is not a single occupation, there is not a single home that is sufficient to bear the burden that you are placing upon it of providing for you your meaning in life. What he sees is a young audience that thinks otherwise. And so the preacher engages 
and that universal need to feel a sense of meaning and fullness that God has given and he seeks to correct where it is found. Let me show you how he does this for the next few moments together. By considering where the book begins, it isn't one isolated problem. It isn't a single aspect or sector of human existence that is vanity, but rather you notice he makes the entire earth the subject of his analysis. Once again, there is not a single item, relationship, job, degree, or home, or whatever have you in the entire world that is sufficient to bear the burden you place upon it if you seek ultimate validation and meaning from it. And so he goes so far as to make the entire earth the scope of his analysis. Notice verse 1 and 2. I'll read for you and we'll jump into exactly how the preacher explains. The entire earth is under examination. He will meet us wherever in in any sector we choose to prove it is vanity. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, King in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, if you were to take this term vanity, just so we can wrap our minds around it, it will pop up again and again and again, of which we'll get to in the book. So if it would help to kind of think of this term vanity, what does he mean by it? You could probably guess. Let me kind of provide for you its semantic range. That is, you could insert for the term vanity, depending upon your English translation, you might find there futile, meaningless, vapor, absurdity. The idea being communicated more broadly in the term vanity is, many of you here know, in Pittsburgh. Go on a cold February morning and go outside and blow some hot breath into the air and it's gone saw it, and it's gone. That Kind of go in that mind where you're there, it's cold, it's dark, you're shivering, you're breathing, and your breath is going out, and it is gone. It's going out, and it is gone. It's going out, and it is gone. And the preacher says, that right there is the picture of everything that you place ultimate value upon that is here on the earth. It is gone. It is a breath spoken out, gone. Again, not a single Thing, but all things. So the preacher wastes no time here at the very beginning of engaging us, those who may be placing disproportionate value upon what the Lord has provided. We are making that which is proportionate, ultimate. And in doing so, we will run into madness. He wastes no time engaging us. Neither does he carefully craft or caveat his speech. You see it right there in verse 1. In verse 2, he is a man of deep conviction regarding the entire earth as insufficient for providing ultimate meaning and happiness to man. Vanity, that is, breath, breath, says the preacher, breath of breaths, all is breath. Again, if you were to track, as we will for the next few weeks, the preacher cannot say it enough, as though, as pastors, as you know, particularly this one, repeats and repeats and repeats, so too does the preacher in Ecclesiastes. He cannot say it enough. He is so certain, so convinced that all of life is 
vanity. Everything is a waste that is lived for its mere end under the sun. That he uses the term vanity 37 times throughout the course of 12 chapters. He is a man of conviction on this. It isn't, well, kind of good, kind of good, says the preacher. Everything is kind of good. He is convinced it is a waste. It is vain. It is a breath. Everything, if it isn't ultimate, here under the sun is a waste. 37 times throughout the course of 12 chapters, he will seek to convince you that all of life is vanity. One author then comments on this kind of opening approach of the preacher. The preacher is eager to convince the audience that everything severally, all things collectively, all is one expanse, one vast heap of numberless perishing vanities. To say it perhaps in another way, there is not one aspect of your human existence. Please track with me. There is not one aspect of your human existence that is not frustrated by futility. You see, it's not, notice the term frustrated. Because again, it's not that there is not one aspect of your human existence that has no value. That's not the argument of the book. That's not what's at work. That, on the other hand, if we move that direction, would be equally sinful. To reject that the Lord has gifted us with benefits, relationships, meaningful relationships, the church in time, his word, its value. Uh, A number of things, family, friends, job, occupation, industry, school, um, exploration, science, the beauty of creation, etc., etc., etc. If we were then to turn it and say, no, there is all of life has, it, it is itself futile. No, it is frustrated with futility, meaning it is subject to decay. Therefore, if we have taken that which is proportionate, good, and made it ultimate, we will place upon it a burden of which it is not even designed to bear. And it will turn our hearts into madness, says the preacher. There is not one sector of our human existence that is not frustrated by futility. The preacher is so certain of this, yet again he provides a rhetorical challenge. If you're tracking with me in the first chapter, notice his first rhetorical challenge, beginning in verse 3. So he's already opened up. This is all the sectors of humanity are frustrated and futile. Verse 3, what I ask you, you young folks listening to me, and I say young because when you get to chapter 12, as we briefly introduce, he is crafting this to teach his son wisdom. That there is, a uh, again, a vehicle of wisdom literature to teach largely young adults that are pursuing uh, the world And so he is seeking to correct the young, but certainly a word of wisdom to all. So he poses this rhetorical question in verse 3. What does man gain? You tell me. I'm asking the question that I'm about to answer for 12 chapters. What does man gain 
by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. You tell me. So if I suggest to you, it's a waste. It's vain. Everything is a waste. It is vanity. Then, okay, what does man gain? If the answer to question 2 or verse 2 is no, it's not all vanity, then let me ask you, explain its gains. Now, Again, here with this question, first consider with me the aspect of verse 3, putting together the term toil under the sun and gain. These are the three issues at stake in verse 3 as we begin to explore our lives lived under the sun. The preacher is asking you, then you tell me, what is the gain under the sun by a man's toil? The term toil there. I simply throw out this statistic, not for you to memorize, but to give insight yet again on how much emphasis is being placed in this engagement. The term toil appears throughout the book 22 times. Again, he is hitting hard your work. Under the sun is a phrase also that appears 29 times throughout the book. That is the horizontal life you live, life here. On the earth is the point of analysis. Life that you live. He's asking you, what? You tell me, what is your gain? So you work hard, that is, you toil. It's filled with hard labor. You get up, you hear that annoying alarm. You hit snooze ten times. You wouldn't hit snooze if it was all exciting every morning and you could immediately every day Answer what your return is for your toil. Sometimes admit it. You don't really know. You don't know. You do question. You wonder. You know, some people call it a case of the Mondays. You have it. And you think, oh, I don't know what the point of my toil is. But I toil and I toil and I toil and I toil. Well, then stop and think. What is the return? Is it merely what you see, taste, touch, experience under the sun? Is that not a proportionate benefit? I got paid on Friday. But it's an ultimate benefit. I got paid on Friday. I wish I could work again right now. Is it an end for you? Like our chief end is pay on Friday. Or is it a proportionate end? It's a blessing. Putting the statement together as we consider again, you tell me, what does man gain? What is the cost-benefit analysis of your life every day lived under the sun? By putting this statement together, we see that the primary issue here is one of gain. He's asking quite straightforwardly, the gain that you're getting is financial gain. How important is that to you? If you were right now in the quietness of your own mind, putting it down in its right slot of value, whether you have a ton of it or none of it is irrelevant. What is its proportionate value? 
because clearly he's asking about your gains, given your toil under the sun, because you're toiling under the sun for your gains. So what is its gain? What, what, what do you get? More clearly, perhaps, it is this. The preacher confronts us this way. So, you live life under the sun. If I could pause there, life under the sun is a way of referencing a secular existence. So, you live under the sun. it's, It's speaking of just the simple horizontal end. Your chief end is something to be found under the sun. It it is a gain that you're going after, and you're getting there by hard work. You're working hard for this chief end benefit of yours. And it's a gain to you. And yet, this life lived and toil and striving is apart from considering God. It is life here and now. I'm gathering, I'm accumulating, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to leave it to somebody else, which later the preacher says, depressed him deeply. So before you go that direction, let me ask you, what do you think is really happening in the games? What do you think it means to live a life apart from God in gaining monetary efforts, monetary value? What is it to you? So it is that he says it this way. So you live a secular life, do you? You don't need God. You don't need his help. You don't live for his glory. You're not considering his commandments. You're not considering his law. You're irrespective of his gospel. You live a horizontal existence. This is all that matters. And you're sure of it. Well, you know, in your experience, it is filled with great toil. That is stress, hard work, office politics, explosion at the workplace where things don't work. A doesn't connect to B. It's filled with toil, striving, troubleshooting. It's hard work. For some, it's simple grunt labor. That's what it is. And you you don't need God. You live this life. You work real hard. And let me ask you this. For what? I look out and I know every single person in here has asked that question. For what? The listener in the audience, thankfully nobody just shouted it. But you can pretend with me somebody originally in the audience did. And the answer was, for profit. That's why. For profit. That is an end. The response from the preacher to the answer, profit is why. Profit is the what. The response from the preacher to the man or woman who says in their heart even this morning, it is for profit. It is for money. It is for things. The preacher responds, well, then you are mad because you are actually gaining nothing. You say, no, you just missed what I said. For profit. I, that, that's what I've gained. I can show it to you. The preacher says, but you're not getting what I'm saying to you. Your profit 
is nothing as an ultimate end. You're not, you're not seeing what I'm saying to you. Again, I, I get it, I get it, I get it. You're, you're getting money. Understood, sure. Labor, return. I get it. But you're not getting it. It's like breath. It goes out and disappears. It, it, it's vanity. It's futile. You've taken what is proportionate, a good gift, labor, industry, and return, and you've made it critically and ultimate. It can't bear the burden of being your ultimate. It will collapse, and you'll collapse with it. It's madness. So why do you go? Why do you work? preacher then to convince the individual who sees profit as their ultimate return. His response is recorded for us throughout the rest of this introductory speech or poem by the preacher, and that is in verse 4. Notice what he says in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. This is his continued response to the one who says, I go for the gain. I go and I toil and I work and I don't need the Lord. I live a secular existence for the money. That's why. And that means something to me. And he's saying, sure, it should, but only proportionate to its intrinsic value. It cannot be ultimate. Let me explain like this. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. That is, if I could make summary, and then we'll briefly walk through this and end our time together. And that is, the response goes as follows. If the earth goes on forever, and this is, I'm posing it to you of what the summary of verse 4 is in response to the one who says, I go for gains. He is saying it to you, and I'm asking you this same question that each of us would ponder just for a moment. In response to financial gain is sufficient to be a return of ultimate value. Again, I'm not suggesting that we confessionally say that to one another. Of course, we wouldn't. It's an issue of the heart. He says it like this. If the earth goes on forever, that is generations and generations, unlike and in contrast to you who is but a breath, and it, that is the earth, gains nothing. It, it, now, consider that, that the earth gains nothing. Here's you, little old you. Here's the cosmos. It goes on forever. And you're a flash in the pan. Put these two things in contrast. As he is doing here in verse 4. It gains nothing over the course of generations. And you are but a breath. How is it that you think that you, an individual, compared to the cosmos, will ever gain anything? How is it? You say, I do gain. I have ultimate gain. And he says, not even the earth has gain. That goes around for generations. Let me make it even more 
plain. There are three observable examples, says the preacher, for the force of his argument when you're comparing you to the earth, or that is to the cosmos. There are three observable examples he provides us here in this opening poem from nature that prove his point that there is no ultimate gain here upon the earth. Look at verse 5 through 8 as he explains the introduction of the earth in verse 4. Again, a generation goes and a generation comes. Okay, so you're a flash in the pan. But the earth, it remains forever. And it has no gains, verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuit, the wind, look at there, returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. So it is from these three observable examples from nature. Consider again, how is it that you, little old you, are going to have sufficient gains to validate your existence when the earth that goes around for generations moves and moves and moves and moves and has no gains. That is, consider the first observable nature from the earth that man can simply look out, which is the way wisdom literature works, making these observable stances on patterns in creation and applying them to man's existence. Number one, consider the sun. Notice what the sun does. The sun, for example, is kind of what the preacher's doing here. The sun, take the sun for instance. The sun, look at it, it rises and then it hastens back or it goes down. Right? So it went right back to the place where it started. There was no gain. It rises, the sun goes down, and really it hastens to the place where it rises. It's going right back. There is no gain in the endeavor of the sun. The second example where he says, speaking to the world as it goes round in the cosmos, experiencing no gains. Another example, the wind blows, number two out of verse six. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, And around and around goes the wind. Again, you're contrasting your existence with this. And he says, and on its circuits, look what the wind does. It returns. Look at the third example. All streams. Look what they do. Consider from the sun to the blowing of the wind to the flowing of every stream you can think of. It runs toward the sea. But the, sun, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. In sum, all things, says the preacher, everything under the sun is full of weariness. The entire earth, in other words, is incessantly repetitious. Observable wisdom, says the preacher, will show you that the earth is not even structured to enable gain or advancement as an ultimate end. 
This is calling you forward as he engages you. You're on the pursuit for ultimate answers. You're on the pursuit for validation. For meaning. For some sense of validating who I am and why I'm here. I'm looking for an ultimate end. And he's saying, you cannot find it under the sun. Even the earth itself, the cosmos, is incessantly repetitious. You'll spin around and around and around. You're kind of, you know, maybe like the pet dog chasing its own tail. It, it just keeps going without discerning. Oh, wait a minute, that's me. There's a, a level of madness to the constant pursuit of disproportionate values as an ultimate return. The earth isn't even structured to enable such advancement. Further, the preacher, as we wind down our time, further says the preacher, you know this. This is how he's engaging each one of us. It isn't that he thinks we can stand back and say, no, that's not true. That's not true. No, no, I don't really have those internal longings. I don't have those senses and those feelings of inadequacy. I don't have them. No, I know that I'm, I know that I'm on the pathway to ultimate success. The preacher says, you know that that is not true. You yourself are a part of the futility of existence. And he explains it from nature and creation right down to human existence. Look at verse 8 again. All things are full of weariness, repetition. Consider yourself. You know that you're a part of the earth that's spinning. You know that you experience the same. Let me give you an example. A man, that is you, man, woman, a, a human being. You cannot utter it. You can speak, but you cannot explain it. The eye, he moves on to the example of the eye. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. So the sun rises and goes right back. The wind blows and goes right back. The streams rise and flow and then they flow again. The man cannot even explain it. He can speak but not explain it. The eye can see but it isn't satisfied. There's no gain. You think, yes, if I could just see this, maybe in my life, maybe in a significant relationship, if I could see this day, that would mean everything to me. He says, no, the eye can see whatever it wants to see, and it is not satisfied. No, it's not going to be an end to you. You're disproportionately valuing that. And there is no perfect proportionate answer to life under the sun. When we seek it as an ultimate end, the eye will never be satisfied. You can speak and you'll never sufficiently explain. He moves from man and his speech to the eye that is not satisfied to, nor is the ear filled with hearing. No matter the juicy comment, no matter what you think needs to be heard, no matter what you're dying to know, the ear will hear it, it'll be filled, and it will need to hear again. The ear is not filled in simply hearing what you think you need to now hear, it goes on and on and on. The preacher concludes, the man speaks and can't explain. The eye sees and is not satisfied. The ear hears and is not filled. In other words, there is no gain. The preacher concludes with verse 9. 
that whether it is the world going round or mankind and his existence upon the earth that is going around or even the history of ideas, there is nothing new upon the earth. There is no gain to be had under the sun. I could say it maybe like this. Life, and maybe we don't want to think of it this way, but it is proportionate. Life is one big rerun of programming. Look at verse 9. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. In other words, there is, again, no gain. Remember, you're supposed to, as the listener, be answering right now, what is your gain? He asked you in verse 2, what is your gain for all your hard work? You get up and you go. You get up and you go. You get up and you go. What's your gain? The preacher's argument is there is none. So it is that what has been done is what will be done again. There is no gain and there is nothing new, he says at the end of verse 9, nothing new under the sun. Again, someone says, oh, I know what's new. There is something new. And who knows what that new thing would have been in the original audience here that would have responded. So the preacher asks, verse 10, Is there a thing of which it is said? I'm pressing you. Audience, I'm pressing you. Listener, I'm pressing you. You tell me. Here is his next question. It is rhetorical. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. I can point to this over here. Oh, no, no, no. You got your analysis all wrong. This over here is brand new. He says, is there, you, you, you tell me, is there something that you can say? See here, this is new. You don't have this under your analysis. Uh, you missed it. This is the ultimate return. It's brand new. You got to get it. You got to have it. You got to experience. You got to work, toil, hard work under the sun without help from God, without considering Christ's glory, without it. This is new. Check it out. Is there, I'm asking And in his response, it has already been done in the ages before us. Now, again, a brief comment here about his response. There is nothing new. Again, we can say that there is new things. I I think that uh, this audience in particular is often on the on on the front lines of discovering new things, whether it's in their grad school or in their programming work or so forth, or in industry. Many folks can say, we're doing something new. So at that same time, what he's getting at is the fundamental basic components of human existence that then these new entrepreneurial launches are built upon. That is, we're advancing things, but we're not crafting brand new ones in the history of ideas. Philosophical thought, deeper concerning questions. He is suggesting to us, it's not a trinket. What I'm asking is an ultimate. Is there something new to be considered? His answer to you, it has already been done in the ages before us. Furthermore, he presses, there is no remembrance of former things. He warns you, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things. Those things yet to be among those who come after. 
So we would say, perhaps, at the moment, there are some new things. I think, like, for my kids, maybe, or I don't know where we're all at, but maybe for my kids, someday, um, you know, early 2000s dress and early 2000s wear will, like, go out of style in the mid-2000s, and then they'll come back by the time my kids are in college. It'll be in style again. Do you, you get that? Like, I think we're supposed to be wearing all the clothes and ideas from the 80s. That, 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 that's, the, that's the cycle. That's the, and we say, no, that's new. Skinny jeans, new. No, they're not. You know. Glasses, too large for us to bear. They're new. No, they're not. <laughs> they're not. They're not. High-waisted, low-waisted pants, they're new. They're not. Just look at your parents' pictures. They're not new. Neither is the philosophy of ideas that go with them or the attitudes that are associated with any of them. None of it's new. What's been done is what is being done again. It's incessantly repetitious. So, so his point, if we then overinvest, overcommit, it's not just a small problem, it's a deadly error. not like if we could just maybe like maybe correct a little bit no it's a massive reorientation to sum up our thoughts even so says the preacher there is no ultimate gain even if there is a, a, a seeming moment of gain that is deeply meaningful and impacting we must recall that in the scope of life under the sun, it is but a flash in the pan. It's not that your degree in accomplishing it didn't mean anything. It just means that no one will remember you. That is, it's not an ultimate end. It's not a chief end. It is a moment that is meaningful, but not to be confused with its proportionate value. So ultimately, there is no gain in a secular life lived under the sun. And I conclude this. It isn't just the preacher who probes the prophets of the world. Here, that it's the first time anyone's ever discussed this. And it'll be the last statement that anyone discusses. How do we know that he had the perfect insight into it? Again, we recall it isn't just the preacher who probes the prophets of the world, but Jesus also asks you and I, this morning, cost-benefit analysis. What will it profit you when, when the preacher says, what is your gain? Tell me, you're, you're toiling. I get it, we all toil. For you, what is your profit? So Christ does probe. What is your profit? If a man gains the whole world, which is the analysis of the preacher. All things are vanity. What is the profit of a man if he gains the whole world, but gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That's the cost-benefit analysis. What is your life about? Why do you toil every day? 
What is your ultimate end? How are you valuing the good gifts God gives you? Is it by faith proportionate to their intrinsic value? Or have we put a weight upon the things of earth, a burden they just cannot bear, leaving us hurt, isolated, and heading toward madness? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would continue